children are dismissed for a children's church. And ask the rest of you, please, to open your Bibles to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. And while you all turn there, I want to take an opportunity for us all to say hi to our snowbirds. I know that they regularly download these messages and listen to them, so I thought it might be nice for us to, to say hello to them. So on the count of three, just say hi. One, two, three. Hello! There you go. We miss you, and we look forward to being reunited with you. Last week, our study of First Timothy came to an end. And so now we turn our attention to the second book of the Psalms, Psalm 42 being the first psalm of book two. Um, the division of the books is, is into five books, and it's not arbitrary. The final psalms of each book contain a coda, a doxology that is shared among them, and you can compare that at your leisure. And as we move into the second book of Psalms, it's also considered the second book of David. Books one and two are considered the books of David. But we encounter the first psalm not attributed to him so far in the Psalter. In the first 41 psalms, all of them but four are identified as Davidic. The other four are left without a title. Um, and the book of Acts helpfully tells us that Psalm 2 is by David. So here, however, is our first psalm by another author, this is accredited to the Sons of Korah, not the Australian musical group that I love, but the original Sons of Korah, um, who were Levite leaders in the temple worship and the tabernacle worship. They were actually descendants of the Korah, who withstood Moses and was swallowed by the ground, if you remember that story in Numbers. And it's encouraging to know that you, you aren't condemned for your parents' sins. Your great-grandfather can be a jerk and... God can still use you. Amen? Amen. Um, and if you'll notice in the, in the outline, we're, we're dealing with Psalm 42 and 43 together as a whole. And, and that's because I believe that originally this was one psalm. The divisions, the chapter divisions, the verse divisions were added many centuries after the psalms were originally written. And in fact, in many of our oldest um, collections of psalms, they are, occur as one psalm. Probably most striking, they share a common refrain. If you look at verse 5 of Psalm 42, the psalmist writes, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And Psalm 42 ends, this is sort of the chorus of the song. In verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Then Psalm 43, verse 5, word for word. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So Psalm 43 is really the third and final verse of this psalm. The structure is, is Psalm 42 and 43 are a lament. This is a psalmist pouring out his heart to God. And so there's a four or five verse lament followed by this chorus, followed by the second lament, another chorus, and then Psalm 43 would be the third verse of this lament followed by a chorus. Um, 
So that's how we're going to be treating it. And, and one of the things that I think is crucial, and one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be in the book of Psalms, is God's word help for the discouraged soul. God, let me say that again. God's word has real help, practical help. I hope by the end of our time this morning, you will see some of the practical help the scripture gives for those struggling with discouragement, depression. That godly men and women in scripture have struggled with this, and God has not left them without instruction. In fact, the title of Psalm 42, a mass skill of the sons of Korah, maskil, is the word for instruction. First time it shows up is Psalm 32. And what it means is this is a song written to instruct. The fact that it's dedicated to the choir master means that this was for public consumption. This is not simply an individual lament, as some of David's songs are, describing very particular circumstances of his life. But rather... This is a generalized lament. We will see some of the details of the sons of Korah and what they were going through, but in some senses, the details are left perfect, purposely vague so that we can sing this song, that we can learn from it, that it can become our song in our discouragement. You know, sometimes when people are struggling with oppression, struggling with sorrow, struggling with grief, you know, well-meaning Christians can quote Paul in Philippians 4 and say, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, and there's truth in that. But what that pithy little verse leaves out is how. And maybe sometimes you've wrestled with this. I know the scripture calls me to be rejoicing in God. And the fact that I'm not just makes me more depressed. The fact that I'm not just makes me feel worse. Well, I'd encourage you, next time you're struggling with depression, next time you're struggling with anxiety and sorrow and grief, Turn to Philippians 4 by all means, but please turn to Psalm 42 and 43. It's written for our instruction. Self-counsel for the discouraged soul. Self-counsel for the discouraged soul. This is one of 11 psalms written by the sons of Korah. And so we're going to dive in looking at the first lament and chorus, verses 42, 1 to 6a. I say 6A because whoever put the verse divisions, um, for some unknown reason, takes the end of the chorus and begins verse 6 with it. And so we're going to read that as well. Let's read Psalm 42, 1 through 6A. <clears throat> to the choir master, a muscle of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession and to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And this first verse, this first lament, is titled, or I've titled it, An Extended Drought. An Extended Drought. These are familiar words, are they not? We sing the song, as the deer 
And as I was studying this psalm this week, I became thoroughly convinced that the music for As the Deer in no way matches the psalm. It's a very happy, upbeat melody. And as you read this psalm, this is somebody clinging on to life, broken in spirit, discouraged. The picture is of, is of a severe drought. I don't know if you've ever been thirsty. I mean, really thirsty. Not, not American thirsty, but like third world thirsty. Um, that's, that's what's being pictured here, um, is, is this type of drought. You've seen an animal, if you've watched the Nature Channel or seen it up close, what animals will do when they're thirsty, the lengths they will go to. Um, Joel chapter 1, 19 to 20 describes such a situation. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flames have burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The psalmist is, is making a very vivid word picture. One can picture a deer, mouth parched, tongue dry, just panting, looking for water. He says, that's what I'm like. That's my, that's my soul within me. And, and soul referencing just the entire inner person. And, and what's unique about this lament, this discouragement is sometimes the Psalms sing about self-inflicted pain. David repenting over his sin in, in Psalm 32, describing how because of his unconfessed sin, the Lord's hand was heavy upon him. But that's not the case here. There's not the slightest hint in Psalm 42 and 43 that the psalmist has done anything wrong. Nothing whatsoever. In fact, that's part of what makes it so discouraging because he's crying out to God later. We will see. Lord, I've been faithful. Where are you? And the psalmist is instructing us because what he's aware of is his greatest need is not some more money, not a better spear, not some new clothes, but God. That's profound. Let's just start there. In discouragement, in depression, in sorrow, what you need, whether you know it or not, is God. More of God. The psalmist is separated from the temple worship. And we'll see later, he's up at the northern end of Israel, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and the temple. And yes, he knows that God is omnipresent. He's writing a song to God after all. And yet he is separate from God's special presence, his special fellowship that takes place in the Shekinah glory filling the temple with the multitude of God's people gathering together to worship him. And far away, he misses that. And maybe there are seasons in your life where you felt like, yes, I know God loves me, and yes, I know he's taking care of me, but he feels very far away. He feels very distant. I don't experience the sweet fellowship that I once did, and I don't know why. And sometimes that happens because of our own sin, but again, that's not what's going on here. It's not what's going on here. And so he's aware that his number one need is God, not a change of circumstances, although he will pray for that eventually. But first and foremost, like a deer thirsting in a severe drought for water, I want God. And then he asks the first of many questions in this psalm. When shall I come and appear before? When will I see the face of God? He's wrestling with these questions. He doesn't know. Clearly, it's out of his power at this time to return. 
for whatever reason. Some have suggested that this might be a psalm of the exile, that in an exile route to Babylon, these northern mountains, Mount Hermon, would be the last point in the land. It's possible. Regardless, this, this person is away from community worship, away from God's people, away from his special presence, and right now it's not within his power to return. So he is far from God. And he cries out, when, when will I appear before God? I want to be near God. I want to approach him. I want to experience his fellowship again. And I'm thirsting for it. C.S. Lewis calls this an appetite for God. Your affections are so in tuned that rather than thirsting for water, hungering for food, it's almost visceral. You want God. You, you want sweet communion and fellowship with God. Next we see that what he has, rather, though, are tears and taunts. It's rather ironic. He's the picture of thirst brought up. Thirst. And what's the only liquid he has? Tears. Salt water. He wants living, fresh water, and he's got salt water to drink. His own tears. Day and night have been my food while they say to me all day long where is your God and we see one of these symptoms sometimes of severe depression a loss of appetite the psalmist is, is not eating can't eat doesn't want to eat and so the only thing that's entering his mouth are his tears and I just want to pause again and say spirit filled godly people have been here if, if you've ever experienced this it doesn't make you a bad Christian it doesn't make you weak what matters is how you respond to this. We're going to see the psalmist fight back by faith. That's what matters. If you let this wash over you, if you give up in despair, then yes, there is a lack of faith. Yes, there is some weakness. But if you fight back by faith the way this psalmist fights back, praise God. I mean, understand, the Spirit of God is filling this psalmist causing him to write God's very words. There's not a sinful attitude expressed here. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to be and feel weak if that knowledge of your own weakness causes you to cast yourself upon God. It's okay to cry. It is. What matters is how you fight, how you respond. And, and not only does he have his own tears, but he has the taunts of his enemies mocking him. What we'll later see in, in Psalm 43, that these are people of the nations, not Israelites, but part of the goyim, the ungodly nation surrounding. And, and what they're saying to him is, where is your God? And what they mean is, where is he when you need him? I don't know if you've ever had someone taunt you that way. Oh, you put your hope in God, do you? Well, where is he now? Where is he when, when the calamity comes? Where is he when you need him? It's bad enough that the psalmist is wrestling with thinking this. It's worse to have others taunting you this way. It just adds upon his misery. Adds upon his sorrow. And so what he does then in verse 4 is he thinks back to better times. He thinks back to better times, saying that these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them, the procession to the house of God with glad shouts, Songs of praise and multitude-keeping festivals. Let me pause and say, memory can be a dangerous thing. 
Sometimes we can torment ourselves even more greatly with our memory. The book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7, 10 warns, Do not ask, why are the former days better than these days? For it is not from wisdom that you ask. What Ecclesiastes is saying is there's a temptation for us to, to glamorize, to look with rosy-colored glasses at the past and compare the present negatively. And I'm sure you've met people that you know, things aren't like they used to be. Ecclesiastes warns about that, but there is a place for, for looking back at better days. The psalmist is using memories of times when he was in sweet fellowship, times when he was united with God's people to encourage him. And it really forms the, the stepping stone to his response in verse 5, the chorus. And what's really important to get here is that we need to speak back to our hearts. We need to learn to counsel ourselves. See, inside each and every one of us is a heart that even though we are redeemed and born again, there is still traces of the old man. Old what our heart does is it thinks and it reasons and it interprets and it makes advertisements. You know, and it comes up with justifications and it speaks to you. Your heart says things like, you don't deserve that. You shouldn't have to put up with that. Or, who could really blame you if? And on and on and on and on. Our heart keeps coming up with propaganda. And we need to learn to speak back to our heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote an entire volume on these two psalms called Spiritual Depression and Its Cures, says this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself? instead of talking to yourself. Do you realize that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of to yourself? And so what the psalmist does is he talks to himself. And you can imagine this may look kind of odd. Normally when we see people talking to themselves, we kind of give them a wide berth. But there's a good and godly way to talk to yourself. And the psalmist says, Soul! You sort of picture him looking inside. Soul! Listen up, soul. Why are you downcast, soul? Why are you in turmoil within me, soul? Soul, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And, and this is... One of the temptations we have in a trial is we tend to think this is the way things have always been, always will be, world without end, Amen. If life is bad now, then life's always been bad, and life will always be bad. Sort of a totalizing aspect to our sorrows. And he remembers, no, no, things are bad now. But they weren't always bad. There, there were better times. And that causes him to hope and to think, that means maybe there'll be better times again. That, that this is a season of my life right now. This is a season of life where God feels far from me. A season of life where I'm sorrowful. And so as he speaks to his soul, he reminds his soul, this isn't the way it's always going to be. It certainly isn't the way it's been. And soul, do not forget that God is my Savior. God is my Savior. He's my salvation. And in light of the good things that have come before, and in light of the good things that have promised to come, and in present salvation, soul, do you really have any valid reason to be so depressed is what he's saying. No, he's not denying his depression. He is depressed. He is sorrowful. 
but he's reasoning with himself, saying, look, look at it in the big scope of things. You have a God that you know who has redeemed you, who is your savior, who is your life, and you've had good days in the past, and he has promised good days to come. I mean, for every one of us here, it's going to get better. Hopefully in this life, definitely in the life to come, but if things are rough now, you've got to remind yourself, this is not the permanent state of affairs. This is not the permanent state of affairs. And remembering is so key here. And speaking to ourselves. And thus ends the first lament and chorus. I was talking to Pastor Joel about this text. He recently preached it as the two Psalms as one, I might add. And he had a very apt description that I liked. It was kind of like a boxing match. And, and, and the, the person's out there in the ring getting beat up. And then they go and they sit down in the corner on the stool and the coach is giving them the back massage and giving them the water and giving them a pep talk. And, and so the lament part is the battle where all the discouragement and all the fears and all the thoughts of the heart come to the surface. And then this chorus of soul, why are you downcast within me is the pep talk. And he goes back out for round two. And what you'll see in round two is he fights a little better. He fights a little stronger. Some of these themes that came up in the first lament come up again. They come up a little differently. So let's dive into, we went from an extended drought to an unexpected drowning. To an unexpected drowning. It's unexpected because we were just talking about a drought. Now we're to talk about drowning. He wanted water, but he's going to have more than he needs here. Verses 6b to 11. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation in my God. The psalmist comes out of the first chorus. He's speaking to his soul, but just because he's counseling his soul doesn't guarantee that the counsel will take immediate effect. And he admits, my soul is still cast down within me. And now we get the second occurrence of this notion of remembering. Therefore, I remember you. Now in verse 4, he remembered the worship of God, the things associated with God, gathering together with the people of God, and how sweet that was. Here, he takes a step of improvement. That was good, but remembering God himself is better. Because, you see, the things of God can change. He used to be gathered with the people. Now he's not. But as he turns his mind's eye to the person of God, there is no change. And so as you remember how God was good, you become convinced of knowing that he is good, that he will continue to be good. As you remember the character of God, you're reminded of who he is. As you look at who he was, you know who he is. And, and, 
and this verb for remember is a much stronger word than our English word, remember. You may say to someone, you know, don't forget, remember to pick up some butter when you go to the store. And you're certainly not telling that person to just be thinking and mulling over and thinking and rethinking butter, butter, butter. I mean, maybe some of us, that's what we need to do to remember the butter. But for most of us, you know, you can just make a little note in your phone, and I remembered that. That's not what's envisioned here. Gerald Wilson writes, Memory for Israel is never as simple as bringing to mind a set of feelings or facts. Almost without exception, a call to remember is at the same time a call to action. Israel is called to remember Yahweh in order to remain faithful to him. She is to remember the commandments and so keep them. She must remember Yahweh's wonderful acts and give praise for them. She should remember how Yahweh delivered her in spite of her lack of righteousness and be humbly dependent on him. Memory is never passive, but requires an active response to what is remembered. To remember Yahweh is to ground one's life in and on him, and so to draw all one's life's decisions and actions out of that foundation. Consequently, to forget Yahweh is to resist making the connection between who he is and how one is to act in response. It is to act as if Yahweh has no claim on me that embodies this sort of forgetfulness. It is as if I could wipe him out of my mind or unlearn him, so to speak. All the history built up between two friends and to act as if we were just another person, strangers, with whom I have no connection. We've got to remember who God is. Remember, your circumstances can get so big and up in your coming off the highway can distort what's in the background. You've all seen that, driving down the road. Heat coming off the highway will distort if your circumstances and your troubles are big in your face and off in the distance. Yeah, there's God. God's going to start to look distorted. And, and you got to you got to put God up front. I got, I got to remember who this God is. I got to remember what he's done for me. I got to remember his character if I'm going to think rightly about my trial. He says he remembers him. He remembers him from, from Mount Hermon and the Jordan, Mount Mazar. And Mount Hermon, you can go online and look this up, is, is a very tall mountain. It's kind of a series of mountains. It's about 9,200 feet um, above sea level. It's nearly perpetually snow-capped. And it marks the northernmost um, area of, of Israel. And so the psalmist is way up north, perhaps even north of Mount Hermon, which would put him outside of Israel. And Mount Hermon, due to the snow melting and some springs at its base, form the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. It flows into the Sea of Galilee and out the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows. And coming down Mount Hermon, there are these waterfalls. Um, again, you can go online, look this up. It's big, powerful waterfalls. So as the psalmist is near Mount Hermon, uh, Mount Mazar just means Little Mount. It's probably the name of some lesser peak of Mount Hermon. He remembers God. And, and this picture of water tumbling and falling and roaring informs his next lament. Remembering to remember, next, swept away in a sea of trials. Swept away in a sea of trials. He says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Again, the irony, last stanza, he's, he's, he's dying from dehydration. Now he's drowning in a sea of trials. You know, um, it, it's a frightening thing 
You feel like you're about to drown. A few years ago, I was out in the bike path. Some of you have heard this story. And it was back when we had all that flooding. I don't know how many years ago that was. Four, three or four years ago. And I did not grow up with flooding, and so I don't know the uh, slogan, turn around, don't drown. And I do now. Oh, I do now. And so I was out the bike path. I, ra- I rode through some patches of water that were probably about yay deep, but they were still, and so I thought nothing of them. And I got up to coming, and I turned around, and, and as I was heading back, I thought, you know, bright idea. I'll take a different route back. Maybe I can avoid some of the water. And so I took the, the dirt road back, and I crossed over the bridge, and in front of me, I see a big, big patch of water crossing the road. And the last water I crossed was calm and smooth. This looks calm and smooth. I think nothing of it. I got my headphones in. I'm bebopping along on my bike. And I start to enter the water. And the first thing I notice is the current. There was a current. The next thing I notice is it just keeps getting deeper. And I'm waiting for it you know, to start to come up the other side. And I'm actually riding the bike and about this deep in the water at this point. It sounds funny. It was terrifying. I have never gone from careless, you know, humming along a song. Oh, God, please help me. And then the bike, no, no. Then the bike is slowing down and slowing down, and then it stops. And I've got about another 50 yards to go. And then I have to plant a foot, and it's a dirt road. And so even the dirt road itself is being swept away. And I look to the left where the water is going, and there's all these little scraggly trees and stuff. And I think to myself, if I lose my footing here, if I get swept away, I'm going to drown. Thankfully, well, then the next thing that happened actually was a blessing. The bike came out from underneath me. But what it actually did is I held onto the handlebars that gave me some counterbalance. I was able to sort of waddle my way the next 50 yards, holding this thing, leaning against it as counterweight to the edge. And I was just shaking when I got out. And by the grace of God, I did not drown. I do believe I've learned my lesson, but I can sympathize with the psalmist when he cries out, these waters are, are sweeping me away. I mean, it was terrifying. Like, understand, that's what he's saying here. All your breakers and your waves are over me. They're rolling over me. It, you can feel like that. And he knows it's God who's doing it. He knows God's in control. He doesn't try to cop an out with, well, God doesn't have anything to do with trials. God just makes puppy dogs and cute things. No, he knows God is in control of his trials. He knows God is the one who is measuring the situation. And yet, knowing that doesn't stop him from saying, I'm terrified. I feel like I'm being overwhelmed. Swept away by trials. This is the same language Jonah uses. We're not sure if Jonah quotes it or not, but in Jonah 2.3, he says, you have cast me into the deep in the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounds me. All your waves and billows passed over me. This is a drowning. And then he fights back by faith. Then he fights back by faith. And we get verse 8. You notice there's discouragement, and then there's some encouragement. He's, he's active. His hope is growing. And he says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night... His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And he expresses, point C, confidence in God's providential care and love. Notice also this recurrence of the notion of day and night. Back in verse 3, by day and by night, my, my tears are my food day and night. 
He sort of redeems this image. This image gets developed. Now he's remembering that, yes, I may be crying day and night, but also day and night, the Lord commands his steadfast love. Now, in your Bibles, the word Lord should be all caps, which means it's the divine name of God, the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Now, a characteristic of the second book of Psalms is almost uniformly the Lord is spoken to of as God, Elohim. It's the only time in these two psalms where Yahweh shows up, and it's not for nothing that it's right next to his covenant love. The psalmist can't think of God's covenant love, his steadfast love, his said, without also realizing the covenant name of God. The two go together, God's steadfast love and his covenant name. I think it's a wonderful thing that he's remembering that by day and by night, in the midst of all these trials, Yahweh is holding fast to his steadfast covenant love. And at night, his song is ever with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And he's simply saying that he's got other psalms in the book of Psalms that he's singing that are encouraging him. He's doing better than the exiles in Psalm 137.4 who say, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now this, this son of Korah, he's using the Psalter at night to encourage himself to sing God. He's remembering God's faithfulness and his steadfast love. And even the names for God are developing. The God of my life. But then, verse, verse 9, there's more confusion again. He fights back with some hope that pushes back. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And notice that word rock there. Why is the psalmist not ultimately swept away and drowned? Because he has a rock to stand on. What I would have given for a rock or even just pavement when I was riding my bike. Part of what made it so frightful was stepping on a dirt road that's being swept away and the fear of losing your footing. So after speaking of this near drowning, God is his rock. But he still has questions. The last question he asked, when in verse 2? Now, Why? He's remembered God. He's recalled God to mind. He's been meditating on God. Why has God forgotten him? I don't know if any of you have had loved ones or friends who've suffered with Alzheimer's, but it can be a terrible thing to slowly see your memory, the memory of you, the memory of someone else being erased in someone else. And that's kind of what he's feeling is going on with God. God, I've remembered you. I've brought you to mind. I've been fighting for joy and hope with the remembrance of you. Why have you forgotten me? It's not that he has forgotten him, but that's certainly the way the psalmist feels. And why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This is point D, confusion at God's absence in the presence of foes. He asks these two questions of why. He doesn't understand. That's part of what makes this so difficult. He hasn't sinned. He hasn't brought this on himself. He's remembering God. God, why aren't you remembering me? Why are you so distant? Why don't you intervene when my enemies taunt me saying, oh yeah, well, where's your God now? One of the things I love about the Psalms is they're real. Sometimes you meet Christians who you sort of get the impression for them to ever admit discouragement would be sort of letting the side down. And so everything's wonderful. 
Everything's wonderful. You know, how are you doing? It's wonderful. My car broke down. It was wonderful. And my flight was delayed. It was wonderful. No, you don't need to do that. You can be honest. You can be honest. Now, now there is the juxtaposition of suffering and encouragement. The Apostle Paul models this in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10. He says, we are afflicted in every way, crushed, persecuted, not forsaken, down, not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. There's a way in which you can simultaneously be suffering and mourning and rejoicing. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing hope and fighting for hope, and we're seeing waves and billows come in and almost knocking him off. In the midst of it, he's in the thick of it, but he's fighting back. That brings us then to this chorus a second time. And he speaks back to his soul. He says, soul, why are you downcast? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, soul. I shall again praise him. This isn't the end. Shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And you've got to talk back to yourself, and sometimes you've got to talk back to yourself repeatedly. You've you got to learn the habit of speaking back to your heart, and you need to do it regularly. In this one psalm, he does it three times. This isn't a magic bullet. You go get alone where no one can hear you so you don't look weird and say, soul, soul. It's not, probably not going to work. You've got to be bold. You've got to be courageous. You've got to do this regularly and talk back to your heart. Don't just listen to your heart. Instruct your heart. Instruct your heart. And really now we see that this taunting has, has really become the highlight of what's bothering him probably the most. It's like a mortal wound to his bones. And that really takes up the theme of, of Psalm now 43. Stanza. Psalm 43, he writes, Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and the unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lot. Oh God, my God, why are you downcast within me? Hope in God. I praise him. God. And this last stanza, then, we see an impassioned plea for deliverance. An impassioned plea for deliverance. It's everything together now for the psalmist as he's been wrestling through this. He now knows what he needs. He knows the reason to argue with God why to do it. He knows how he wants it done. And he was predicting the result. He's focused. The plea, verse 1, vindicate me. Notice the boldness here. Before, he's just sort of confused in a fog. What's going on? And I'm, I'm dying of thirst and I'm drowning and people are mocking me and I'm far from God and I don't know when I'm going home. Now, Lord, vindicate me. That, that's an okay prayer to pray. God, vindicate me. These people around me are mocking me. And by mocking you and me, they're mocking you. He says, vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. 
or an ungodly nation from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. Really, there's three things. There's vindicate me, defend me, and deliver me. He's boldly petitioning God to act. Boldly petitioning God to intervene. And not just that, but verse 2, he gives a reason why God should do this. For you were the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The reason he gives, his continued trust in God. His continued trust in God. And not just that, notice that the end of verse 2 is a repetition of what was said in 42 verse 9. Word for word. See, and in 42 verse 9, when he says, Why have you forgotten me? And why do I go mourning because of the enemy? The oppression of the enemy. He's just out grief. Here it's a reasoned argument. In the presence of the nations, Lord, I've been faithful. Why would you let yourself be seen as weak? It's not just vindicate me. It's vindicate yourself, O Lord. Show yourself to be mighty and strong among the people. So he says the same thing, but with a slightly different twist, because here it's actually his reasoning. It's his argument. The psalmist knows God is zealous for his glory. The psalmist knows that God is purposeful and resolute in making a name for himself. He says, Lord, I'm surrounded by an ungodly people, an ungodly nation. They're taunting me. They're saying, where is your God? Would you please show up with power? Would you please show up and vindicate and rescue and defend me? It's okay. It's better than okay. It's godly. And the means, the psalmist doesn't end there. He knows how he wants the Lord to do this. Lest you think he's praying for an army to show up and kill his enemies. That's not the case. He needs two things, light and truth. Send out, verse 3, your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Light here um, is really, I think, a reference to clarity of what's going on. He's been confused. He's been confounded. He's, he's been in the deeps. And light exposes. Light reveals. In part, it will vindicate him and his claims to worshiping an awesome and faithful God. In part, it will help him understand his circumstances. It will help him make sense of his suffering. He needs light and he needs truth. You need understanding and you need truth to understand. Lord, send out your light. Send out your truth. Again, notice he knows what he needs. He doesn't need a pickup truck. He doesn't need some money. He doesn't need a new set of clothes. He doesn't need a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Or He needs God's truth. He needs God's light. We need God's truth and God's light. And then, he envisions the result. And notice, by the way, this is the happy conclusion of verse 2. Back in verse 2 of Psalm 42, he asks, When shall I come and appear before God? And I just love how verse 4 of 43 begins, Then. When? Then. When will I appear? When God sends out his light and his truth. That's when. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. I mean, he's now confident God's going to act. He's, he's envisioning God acting on his behalf. And so what will be the result of God vindicating him, of God sending his light and his truth? Worship, praise, and joy. Worship, praise, and 
and joy. It's not wrong to want to be joyful. It's not wrong to want to be filled with joy as long as the thing that fills you with joy is God. Then I will go to your altar, O God, to God my exceeding joy, and I'll praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. And then one last time in this psalm, the psalmist speaks to his soul. He's, he's I think, rounded the corner here. May not be out of the woods yet, but he sees, he sees the end in sight. He's at his most hopeful. And again, we get this thunderous chorus. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, soul, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As we think through what do we do with this? How, if we're struggling with depression, how, if we're struggling with sorrow, discouragement, what do we do? I just want you to remember three things. Three things. Point 2A, remember to remember. The importance of remembrance. One of the things that our heart does when we're in a funk is that's all we see. We just see this bad situation. We just see this bad season of our life. And we forget about the good times that came before. And we forget about the promises of God that are coming. And all we see and all we live and all we experience and all we think is this little section of our life. And that's where remembrance plays a key role. Remembering who God is. Remembering his promises. Remembering better times. Remembering promises of things to come. The second thing I want you to remember is to avail yourself of the community of faith and worship. Sadly, many times when people are struggling with depression, when they're struggling with sorrow, when they're struggling with melancholy, they pull away. They isolate themselves, which is really the worst thing you can do. If you're here today and you're struggling, if you're, if you're in a dark season of your life, please, please, please do not isolate yourself. The psalmist is dying of thirst, drowning under waves, and yet what he needs is to go back to the temple with the people, with God, to worship. I want to go back to his altar. I want to go back to corporate worship. Again, Wilson writes, there is strength in numbers. The individual can encourage, challenge, or admonish the community towards faithfulness and endurance. And the community can provide a collective memory the mighty acts of God that exceeds the memory or experience of one and provides the continued context for enduring faith, hope, and love. For someone to be cut off from this experience of communal worship, as our psalmist is, is to be cut off from the sustaining ground of faith and hope and to be left to one's own poor devices to survive. Many don't. Many don't. Thirdly, remember to speak truth to yourself. Don't just listen to your heart. Teach your heart. What Martin Lloyd-Jones says, have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Don't just listen to your heart. Talk to your heart. Remember God. Avail yourself of the community of faith. Don't isolate yourself. I want to make one last point as we close. This psalm gets quoted in the New Testament twice by our Lord. It's not as clear in the English, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, Jesus word for word quotes this in John 12, 27 
in Matthew 26, 38. Both times as he is approaching the cross. In Matthew, he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. In John 12, 27, he says, my soul is now troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Here's the last piece of encouragement I want to give you. If you wrestle with depression, discouragement, so did our Lord. So did Jesus. He battled this battle, and he won. You can too. And he used this psalm in his fight. As he anticipated the separation from the Father, as he anticipated dying on the cross for our sins, his soul was troubled and cast down within him. I imagine the cross looks like water. Back by faith, he fought back using this psalm. And so you're in good company if you struggle with these things. You can also take comfort. This works. This works. God's word is powerful, God's word is effective. And this psalm of instruction, instructing us how to wrestle with our discouragement, is effective and powerful as we apply it by faith. Jesus fought this fight too. Jesus fought this fight too. It's a wonderful psalm, wonderful encouragement. Let us remember to remember. Let us not isolate ourselves when we're discouraged, but rather see our need for the community of faith. And let us learn to talk back to ourselves with truth. Dear God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we pray now, Lord, that you would equip us to struggle well, to fight well with discouragement. I, I'm sure not all of us are discouraged today, but if we live long enough, we will be. Lord, we will be. Lord, help us to fight well on that day. And for those here today who are struggling now, Lord, encourage them, help them to fight better and harder and to come out of this rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are to